welcome to another episode of Monsters and Murder. I'm Sam. And I'm Shane. And tonight is going to be, or whenever you listen, we're mm-hmm. going to do part two of the 1966 Chicago student nurse murders. Tonight's episode, or today's episode, whenever you listen, this episode <laughs> is going to um, go over, we're going to find out who the murderer is, get a little bit of background, and then go through the trial, and then we'll wrap it up. Um So, just off the top, I want to give a trigger warning tonight for mentions of suicide. Um, And then we are, again, going to be briefly mentioning the crimes themselves. So, I just wanted to put that out there at the top of the episode. Um, And in this week's episode, uh, it's still going to be named the 1966 Chicago Student Mm -hmm. Nurse Murders. But we'll have the links of the books that I've read. There are a ton of documentaries you can find about this because this is a very well-known case if you google the murderer's name so anyway we can just go ahead and get into it all right um this one was really difficult for me they all are but i think i was able to just put myself in their their shoes Mm -hmm. because i remember being their age living with five other women yes like when i was in my early 20s i lived in a dorm room with five other five other women (laughs) so just a little recap. If you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen to part one mm-hmm. because that's when I talk about the actual victims and go into their backgrounds. So in part one, we found out that um, eight student nurses had been murdered. Pamela Lee Wilkening, Nina Jo Schmel, Valentina Passion, Merlita Gargulo, Patricia Matusik, um, Gloria Jean Davey, Suzanne Ferris, Marianne Jordan, and then there was one survivor, Corazon Emerald. Mm-hmm. And I, when we left off, Corazon had gone out onto the ledge to get help. All right. So, uh, Jack Walinda, he was the first homicide detective to arrive on the scene at 2319 East 100th Street mm-hmm. about 6.30 in the morning on July 14th, 1966. Now, Jack, he primarily worked the night shift. So, he was used to seeing some, you know, gruesome crime scenes. However, what he found at 2319 was the worst that he, he would ever see. Uh-huh. And it would stick with him for the remainder of his life. Um, he was in complete shock. Mm-hmm. Um, as he entered the house, he first found Gloria Davy on the couch. And then as he walked upstairs, he entered the first bedroom. That's where he found Pamela Wilkening, Suzanne Ferris, and Marianne Jordan. Detective Lalinda knew Marianne and Suzanne from the rounds he'd made at South Chicago Community Hospital, so he knew them. Mm-hmm. Leaving the first bedroom, entering the second, that's where he found Nina Jo Schmale, Valentina Passion, and Merlita Gargulo. And then down the hall in the bathroom, he found Patricia Matusik. Now, I think that good detectives, they always feel some kind of compassion and pain when they're going through a crime scene and they're discovering their victims and like, seeing the horrors that were imposed upon him. hmm But for Detective Walinda, this crime scene was especially difficult. So, not only did he know Marianne and Suzanne and had seen them, like, doing what they love, being a nurse. Uh-huh. Um, he had known Patricia Matusik and her family since Patricia was eight or nine years old. Oh, wow. Her father owned a saloon that Detective Walinda frequented. So, he knew her. hmm I mean, I just... I, I can't imagine... That. No, and honestly, if someone walked into a situation like that and was not affected by what they saw, I'd be worried about them as well. Well, I mean, and it's it's one thing if you don't know the victim, yeah. but to have known the victim for the last 
12 years of their life Mm -hmm. since they were a child. Oh, yeah. It's far worse in that situation. So, Corazon was in a complete state of shock, and she had to be sedated. Mm -hmm. So, after the detectives had concluded their initial walkthrough, the head of the nursing program was asked to come in and see if she could identify any of the women. Oh. So, she was able to positively identify Pamela Wilkening, Gloria Davy, and Patricia Matusik. The remaining women would be later identified by their families at the morgue. Oh, goodness. Yeah. I just, I can't imagine, like... Their parents and their siblings, they mm-hmm. had like 20-ish years of memories and photos. Mm-hmm. But the last image of seeing their child or their sibling, in the, that's what's going to be in their mind for yeah. the rest of their lives. Like it's an unfathomable kind of pain that like nobody should have to be put mm-hmm. through. So as Cora was eventually able to speak to detectives, she was bound and determined to help them the best way she could. Uh-huh. Like, even though she was in, like, a perpetual state of fear and had been completely traumatized, Corazon is... She is a badass. <laughs> <laughs> she gave a full account of the events that had taken place mm-hmm. on the evening prior, and she provided a description of the intruder. So, she worked with a sketch artist to develop a composite drawing. She shared that this, the intruder was a white male. He was approximately 25 years old. He was around six feet tall, about 160 pounds, and he had light eyes. So she's like, you know, light eyes, blue eyes, and he had short blonde hair. Uh huh. Now she initially struggled with describing the acne scarring on his face because of the language barrier, but she was able to do so, and officers were eventually able to like figure out what she was trying to describe. That's good. She said that he'd been wearing a dark colored jacket and dark pants when she opened the door and saw him. Mm-hmm. She said he spoke in a very calm manner. He had a southern accent. He seemed really polite initially, aside from the fact that he was holding them at gunpoint. Yeah. Um, so people that didn't live in the surrounding blocks of 100th Street weren't aware that three of the townhomes on that stretch were used as housing for for student nurses. Mm-hmm. And I want to mention, so in this row of townhomes, there are six townhomes. Uh-huh. Three were used by the um, nursing program as residents for the student nurses. Three were privately owned. Mm-hmm. The townhome, so 2319, that was an end unit. So on one side of the house, they did not share a wall with anybody. It went down an alley. Uh-huh. On the other side, they shared with a privately owned townhouse. Mm-hmm. And the evening that the murder took place, the residents of that townhouse were out of town on vacation. Oh. So that, uh, just a little bit of information about that. Mm-hmm. So based on the information that most of the community didn't know that it was used as student nursing yeah. housing. They thought that the man who committed the murder must have been local or had at least spent enough time in the area to know that nurses lived in the townhouse. Mm-hmm. So they began searching immediately. Um, because the man had stated that he wanted to rob the women and take their money, both homicide detectives and burglary detectives were sent out to try to find information about this man. So they were instructed to start knocking on doors and asking residents if they had seen anybody that fit her description or if, like, 
there was anybody that was acting weird. Mm -hmm. This assailant had a southern accent, which would have been something that would have stuck out and been memorable to most people living living in the area. It's because that's that's not something you typically hear in Chicago. No, absolutely not. So, one of the burglary detectives that was working on the case was a detective named Eddie Wielosinski. Now, he started out at the intersection of 100th Street and Torrance Avenue when he was starting his search for information. He started out here because, one, it's near 100th Street, um, which is where the townhome was located. But it's also really easily to get around in, like, on foot in that area. Uh-huh. And it led to the fastest exit to get into Indiana and leaving Chicago. So, he's like, if, you know, there may be something here. hmm So, at that intersection, there's a Shell gas station. And he decided that he was just going to go in there and ask if the attendant had saw anything weird. Um, apparently, this Shell gas station was the chosen gas station for local, like, area criminals to hang out. Oh. And in my head, I see Jay and Silent Bob standing <laughs> outside this gas station. <laughs> so, he goes in to talk to the gas station attendant, and the man there was like, well, yeah, you know, there was kind of a man in here on the 13th. He'd been pretty disgruntled. Um, and he came into the gas station to pick up some bags he'd left there overnight. He was mumbling something about a ship, and he was really upset. And the gas station attendant said he spoke with a southern drawl. Mm-hmm. So, Wielosinski, he had been a former merchant marine during World War II, and he remembered that across the street from the townhomes set the National Maritime Union hiring call, which was a seaman's hiring call. So he's like, you know, I'm going to go there and see if they had given out an assignment to anybody that possibly fit this description. Uh Uh-huh. So he goes over to the hiring call, but the port agent that he spoke with didn't really have a lot of information. He said that the only man that kind of sounded similar had been assigned to a ship that had already left and it was bound for Vietnam. Um, and he confirmed, like, yeah, we got word that the man actually got on the ship, and he's gone. Mm-hmm. So, I'm not sure of the reason, but Wielosinski and his partner goes back to that same Shell gas station to try to get more information from the gas station attendant about the creeper that was in there <laughs> on the 13th. Uh-huh. Um, and so, he, go- he goes in there, and he's talking to the guy, and he's like, well... The attendant tells him, you should probably speak to my manager because my manager had seen him on the 12th and allowed him to leave his bags here overnight. Mm-hmm. So they contact the gas station manager. And he said, yeah, there was a man in here that matched that description. I assumed he was a sailor based on the fact that he kept talking about a damn ship. <laughs> and he was really mad. Mm-hmm. And he, I allowed him to leave his bags at the gas station overnight. The man had been looking for a room to stay in. So, the manager had actually referred him to a rooming house um, a couple blocks away and allowed him to leave his bags there overnight. So, detectives felt this was a good lead and they split up and they began to search local hotels and rooming houses. In their search, Wielosinski stopped at another gas station located at 2416 East 100th Street which was just a few blocks away from the nurse's townhome. Uh-huh. So that gas station attendant told them that 
on the evening of July 12th. So, the day before the murders took place. Okay. Um, Because that took place on the evening of the 13th. Mm -hmm. He told them that a man had entered that gas station looking for a room, and he asked if he could leave two of his bags there overnight. Now, I don't know if this was a common occurrence back then. Like, I totally have a favorite gas station. (laughs) And pre-pandemic, I would leave the house early in the mornings before I went to the gym, Mm -hmm. and I would spend like 15 or 20 minutes in there drinking cheap gas station coffee and talking to the old guys that stood in there and had their cheap gas station coffee (laughs) at 6 o'clock in the morning on Saturday. But... I would not ask if I could leave my bags there ever or not. I mean, I I go in there. I still talk to the manager in that mm-hmm. gas station. But I'm like, really like, hey, can I leave some of my personal belongings here over or not? That's not going to happen. No. And, like, did he leave anything at that one? Cause, because if he did, I'm like, how many bags did he have that no. he was leaving? So, the man, he only had two bags. But the attendant at this gas station told Detective Wielizinski that <clears throat> that man had been so angry and he appeared so, like, deeply disturbed. Mm-hmm. It was to the point where, that he scared that gas station attendant. Oh. And he made the man leave. Mm-hmm. Good. He said that he also believed this man was a sailor because, again, he kept talking about a damn ship. <laughs> like, his words, damn ship. Not that I'm not saying okay. damn ship. That's what the man uh-huh. was saying. So, with this information, the te- detectives go back to the hiring call. And they're like, hey, can we just check one more time that this dude is actually on the ship bound for Vietnam? Mm-hmm. So, confirm, yes, he's on there. But this time, the poor agent remembered that, you know what, there had actually been another man in the office on the 12th. Uh-huh. Apparently, one of the ships that was in Indiana had requested two sailors. So, they brought in two sailors. Mm-hmm. The hiring union did. But when they sent them out, the ship actually realized they only needed one sailor. Uh-huh. So, the hiring union had sent two sailors. One of them came back the following day in a really foul mood because he'd been dismissed on the job because the job on that ship went to the other sailor because he had more experience and a higher ranking. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's making sense now. Yes. So, the port agent remembered that the sailor that had returned, he did have a southern accent. Um, and he, for what, I don't know that they didn't, they must not have taken out the trash for a couple days. Because he <laughs> goes over to the wastebasket and pulled out a copy of the assignment sheet. Oh. Um, it was like a duplicate for what they had sent over to the Sinclair, Sinclair Great Lakes, which mm-hmm. was the ship that he was going to have been worked on. Um, and so he told the men, or the detectives, you know, that man, his name is Richard Speck. Oh, no. So his description of Richard Speck matched the one that had been provided by Corazon and both gas station attendants. Mm-hmm. Including the fact that this man has several tattoos, one specifically on his left arm that read, Born to Raise Hell. Mm. At this point, detectives were like, we're pretty sure this is who we're looking for. Yeah. And it totally was. Mm-hmm. So, we're going to talk just a few minutes about the piece of shit, shit that was Richard Speck. Mm-hmm. And the events that led up to the murder. So, he was born December 6th, 1941 in Joliet, Illinois. His father passed away when he was six. And after his mother remarried, Richard and his siblings relocated to Texas with his mother and his stepfather. Now, from this point, Richard's life was pretty much downhill. His father, his stepfather was 
an abusive alcoholic. He regularly like beat the kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, was really really terrible to Richard. So I'm telling you this like this is not an excuse or justification for what Absolutely Richard not. does later on in life. Mm-hmm. You can feel bad for Richard as a child. And still realize that as an adult, he was a piece of trash. Yes. And a bad childhood does not mean that you are a murderer. Absolutely not. So, um, Richard really struggled to keep up in school. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't speak up in class. And I'm not sure if this is, like, due to anxiety from, like, constantly constantly being beaten at home. Uh-huh. Or if prior to that he had just been a shy child. He refused to wear the glasses that he needed to actually be able to see. Mm-hmm. So he dropped out of school before he began the ninth grade. Now, he also had begun drinking by the age of 12, and his first arrest was at the age of 13 for trespassing. Mm-hmm. You have to remember, this is Texas in the 50s, so kids could get arrested. Like, you could be seven and be arrested, probably. Yes. No, that's not actually accurate, but he was arrested <laughs> at 13. Uh-huh. So his crimes only escalated from there. His earlier arrest included disturbing the peace, burglary, and forgery. Okay. In 1963, he was sentenced to three years in prison on a burglary and forgery charge. He had stolen and cashed a co-worker's paycheck, mm-hmm. which was for $44. And then he went and robbed a grocery store for beer, some cigarettes, and $3 in cash. <laughs> However, he was paroled after only serving 16 months of that sentence. Wow. However, within a week of his release, within a week of his release, he was arrested again, this time charged with aggravated assault, after he attacked a woman with a 17-inch carving knife in the parking lot of her apartment complex. Good grief. That He escalated very quickly. Yes, when the woman began screaming, he ran off, but he was captured within the hour. Mm-hmm. For that offense, he was sentenced to 16 months. I'm not sure why it was only 16 months for yeah. aggravated assault. But due to a clerical error, he was released after six months. I really hate how those clerical error- errors really screw things up for the case. Well, and also you have to remember, and this is not like justifying anything, but... It was, like, in the early 60s, like, mm-hmm. computers were not a thing. If I had to rely on, like, handwritten records, I would be screwed. <laughs> this is very true. Same. So, after about six months from that release from prison, he was arrested again and charged again with aggravated assault after he stabbed a man during a bar fight. Wow, and the escalation continues. Yes, but... After that arrest, his mother had hired a lawyer, and that lawyer got the charges dropped down from aggravated assault to disturbing the peace. How are those even the same thing? They're not. Um, He was initially fined $10 for that incident, Mm -hmm. but after he failed to pay it, he was sentenced to three days in jail. Oh, just three days. Three days after stabbing somebody. But he had almost like three years for robbing a place, Mm -hmm. which is not much better, but still... Um, by March of 1966, another warrant was out for his arrest for, you know, being an asshole. Mm-hmm. Um, however, he moved to Chicago to live with his sister to avoid being arrested. Mm-hmm. By this time, he'd already been arrested 41 times. 41? 41? 41 times between the ages of 13 and 24. Are you kidding? So he's just like pretty mm-hmm. much re- arrested, it feels like, almost every other day. Yeah. Or at least every other week. Yeah. So... When he moved to... So, he actually moved to Monmouth, Illinois, which mm-hmm. is 
um, like, I guess it's right outside of Chicago. Mm-hmm. So, on April 3rd, 1966, just, you know, a month after he arrived in that area, a 65-year-old woman was held captive in her home after she returned late in the evening to find a burglar in her house. The man was tall, white, he spoke with a southern accent, and he appeared to be very polite when he was initially speaking with her before he blindfolded and tied her up. I'm going to give a trigger warning here for sexual assault. Mm. He then raped this 65-year-old woman, ransacked her house, and stole her money. God. Okay. On April 13th, Mary Kay Pierce, a local bartender at Frank's Place, was reported missing. Mm -hmm. She had last been seen leaving the bar around 12.30 a.m. on April 9th. So the same day she was reported missing, April 13th, her body was found later in a hog house that had been located behind the tavern. She had died from a ruptured liver due to a blow to her abdomen. Does that sound familiar to Patricia Matusik's injury? Yeah, that's... Oh. Yeah. Speck was questioned in the murder of Mary Kay because he'd been a frequent visitor to Frank's place after arriving in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And because he was picking up odd jobs, he'd actually been one of the men that helped to build the hog house behind the tavern. Mm-hmm. So, police wanted to question Speck further and told him, you know, please, like, stay in town. You know, we'll we'll come by at your convenience and, and talk to you. <laughs> so, they go to the hotel where he'd been staying, only to find he'd already left town. Surprise, surprise. Uh, they did end up searching his room. Mm-hmm. And when they did, they found some of the cheap costume jewelry jewelry that the elderly woman that had been raped had reported missing a few Aww. days after the attack in her home, mm-hmm. as well as other items that had been reported missing in two other burglaries in the area. Yeah. So things had not been going well with Speck staying at his mm-hmm. sister's house. And it just seems like he kind of bounced around from like hotel to hotel maybe occasionally returning to his sister's home um, for a few nights in between odd jobs, but it just it wasn't working out. Yeah. He didn't want to keep a job. He couldn't keep a job. He was <laughs> a piece of shit. He was, you know, he was not a good person. Yeah. Um, so it was his brother-in-law's idea that, hey, why don't you try to find work as a merchant marine? And he got him in contact with the hiring union. Mm-hmm. So, on July 13th, Speck had returned to the Union hiring call call after the other sailor had been given the position on the Sinclair Great Lakes. Now, I want to mention here that directly in front of the hiring union sits Luella Park. And Uh then on the other side of Luella Park, that's where the townhomes are. Okay. So, you can basically, like, see the townhomes from Mm -hmm. the hiring call. And it was well known to the sailors that some of the townhomes were homes for nurses because they saw the women all the time. They had taken to calling the women the nurses in white, mm-hmm. or the women in white, because the nurses at that time had to wear a like a uniform, which was a white dress with like a white cap. Uh-huh. So, investigators had theorized like it was somebody that was in the area, and... Richard had just literally been at the hiring call just a few days prior to the murder. Mm -hmm. So, after Richard gets back to the hiring call, he was livid 
about not getting this job. So he did what he'd always done to deal with his anger. He found a bar and began drinking. That afternoon, on the 13th, he had taken a 53-year-old woman hostage at knife point. Good grief. Taken her to a room at the shipyard inn where he raped her and stole the 22 caliber handgun that she carried. He then returned back to the bar until about 10.20 before leaving, and it's then believed that he walked the one and a half miles from the bar to the nurse's townhome and then broke in through the back door. Why, though? Just, ugh. He's just, he's a he's shitty a, person. Yeah, he's just yeah. an evil person. That's the only explanation. Yeah, he's an evil person. So now we're back to the investigators thinking that he's probably the person that they're looking for. Mm -hmm. So they obtained information for his nearest point of contact, which was his sister, and they reached out. His brother-in-law answered the phone, and investigators decided to set a trap for Richard. Uh -huh. So they posed as hiring agents and told his brother-in-law that they had an assignment for Richard and they needed to speak to him immediately. So his brother-in-law called the shipyard inn, which is a rooming house where Richard had been staying, and left a message. <clears throat> when Richard returned back, he got the message, and he called the hiring union back. Now, when he called back, he was told there was a job available for him on the Sinclair Great Lakes, and that he needed to be back at the hiring, hiring union by 5 p.m. that day to get more information on the assignment. Mm-hmm. However, Richard would not be coming back to the hiring call because he was aware that the Sinclair Great Lakes was the job he didn't, or the ship he didn't get the job on. It already left. So he knew, like, something was up. Oh, no. He, so, he didn't fall for the fact that there could have been another, maybe? <laughs> no, yeah. It was a mistake. Yeah. The, the person that left that message was supposed to have given a different name. Uh -huh. And so that was a mistake. Yeah. So he left, and he just kept on drinking. Now... A lot of things are happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. So remember, this is 1966, well before cell phones and computers. Mm -hmm. So information that was discovered was not easily shared. No. Like if investigators were in the office and they learned something, they couldn't just call cops out in the field and be like, hey, this is what we're doing. Mm -hmm. They had to wait. Yeah. So... At the same time, those investigators are working the sting operation and waiting at the um, hiring union for Richard to arrive, which he wouldn't. Mm -hmm. Other detectives are out in the field, and they're questioning bar patrons and staff at rooming houses. So, even though detectives that were working the sting operation at the Naval Union had the name of a potential suspect... The detectives in the field did not. They only had the description that was provided by Corazon. Mm-hmm. So, after his arrest, Speck would later share that he had been at one of those dive bars where officers were questioning people. And he overheard the conversations between the investigators oh, and the other patrons. No. So, he slipped out the back door before he was noticed and he went to another bar. Just, oh my goodness. The circumstances that lined up for him to do that. Yeah. And it was at one of those bars where he learned that he had left a survivor. Mm-hmm. So, um, at the crime scene, the police had found a few pieces of evidence. They mm -hmm. found a couple white t-shirts that were blood-stained and had sweat stains on them. But they'd also found three fingerprints on the front door, uh, on a door 
that they believe belonged to the intruder. Mm-hmm. So they do a preliminary background search on Richard Speck and Chicago police records. But that didn't turn up anything because he didn't have an arrest record yet in Chicago. Uh-huh. So they reach out to the FBI. Because this was a huge, this was huge. This was a nationwide front page newspaper. Eight nurses were murdered in their home. It was all over the country. So the FBI definitely got involved. Mm -hmm. And they confirmed that, you know what? We do have fingerprints on file for Richard Speck because he's got like a bajillion arrests in (laughs) Texas. However, again, because this is 1966 and technology is not what it is today, the fingerprints would have to be physically transported from D.C. to Chicago. Which, I mean, it takes a long time now, but even back then it was longer. Well, yeah, because they couldn't just take it. They had to have like a physical physical copy of it. Mm-hmm. So while they're waiting for these fingerprints to come in, Detective Walinda, he did not want to release the photo of Richard Speck that they had obtained from the um, Naval Hiring Union mm-hmm. because he... Without confirmation that this is the person that actually committed these murders, if he were to release that and it was confirmed Richard murdered the the women, when it went to trial, the defense attorneys could state like potential jurors had been biased after seeing his photo in the newspaper. Uh huh. So everything is kind of at a standstill okay. as far as like they're going. Like they're searching, but they can't really do anything until they get confirmation mm-hmm. on these fingerprints. And because they can't do that, on July 15th, which was the day after the, the murders were discovered, mm-hmm. beat cops got a call from a clerk at the Raleigh Hotel stating that there were reports that the man staying in room 806 had a gun. Oh. When the cops go to check it out, they saw the room was regis- registered to Adele Staten. However, when they went up to the room and checked out the ID of the individual they found laying in the bed, they saw that the ID was for Richard Speck. Mm-hmm. Again, these are just beat cops. They are not detectives. They are not even working the case of the murdered nurse- nurses. So, because the other investigators hadn't released the name of Richard Speck, Speck only the description, those cops that went into that room did not know that Richard Speck was a suspect in the murder. So they questioned him about why he was registered under a different name and why he had a gun. Mm-hmm. He told them that the day prior he had brought a sex worker to the room and that the gun must have belonged to her and she left it. Which is not the case. No, absolutely not. Um, that's, I think that's the gun he had stolen from the woman he'd taken at gunpoint the day before. Mm-hmm. Or the day of the murders. Yes. Um... So, because this was 1966, and probably because he'd mentioned he'd been with a sex worker, he was not arrested. The cops Mm -hmm. only confiscated the gun. And as they were leaving, one cop was over her telling the other that that man was just, he was harmless. Wow. So, after this, Speck must have been feeling like the walls closed in around him. Mm -hmm. Because he checked out of the Raleigh Hotel... And moved down to Chicago's Skid Row and checked into the Star Hotel. So, by this time, fingerprints from D.C. had been delivered to investigators on the case. And it was confirmed that Richard Speck was the man they were looking for. Uh Uh-huh. So, now they have his name and they can release his name. They can put his picture in the newspaper. They can release his name. So, it's all over the news. And he's hiding out at the Star Hotel. So, on July 16th, 
Police get a call from a Claude Lunsford, a mm-hmm. man staying at the Star Hotel, stating that, you know, the man you're looking for is staying here at the Star Hotel. Now, he didn't actually speak to a person. He left it on an anonymous tip line. Uh-huh. But he ended up by stating, my initials are CL. Okay. Like, <laughs> I mean, they wouldn't have guessed Claude Lunsford. No. But, um, however... Police didn't check this out. Mm-hmm. Like, it's recorded that they got this tip. And they didn't go? But they never went. Now, uh, from one of the interviews that I watched, it sounded like police just didn't believe it was credible. Mm-hmm. Because they were all stationed at um, train stations because they thought he was going to try to skip town. And they were checking out bars and other rooming houses in parts of Chicago. They didn't think that he would be hiding in a scummy hotel on Skid Row. They thought he'd be trying to get out of town. Yeah, but and that that's the perfect place for someone who is yeah. so well, scummy like him to go. Also, around this time, it was like right at the time of the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. and riots had been breaking out all over the city. So it was kind of in a state of chaos, and uh-huh. cops were working like day-long shifts. So True. they were being pulled in like several different directions. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in the early morning hours of July 17th, so the call... Went into police at about 9.30 on the 16th. Mm-hmm. About 12.30 a.m. on the 17th, an emergency call was made from the Star Hotel stating that there had been a suicide attempt. Oh. This man was taken to Cook County Hospital where Dr. Leroy Smith, who was a first-year resident, had just gone on break. Mm-hmm. He'd been reading the newspaper about the murders of the women. Mm-hmm. Now, in some weird scary way that makes me feel so sad and so uneasy uh-huh. the women had been taken to the morgue at cook county hospital after their murder and dr smith had been present when their bodies were delivered oh no oh yeah yeah so he gets called away from his break and was told there was a patient that was there because of a suicide attempt mm-hmm so he goes in and he begins working on this person, trying to take care of them. Mm-hmm. And he, no, remember, he had just been reading this newspaper. Yeah. Where the photo of the suspect, Richard Speck, had been released and all of his identifying features had been listed. Okay, so the, he, he has seen a picture. Yes. So he's like, he's checking this guy out and he's like, wait a minute. He literally stopped what he was doing Goes back to his office and picked up the newspaper. And he's like, well, that looks like a lot like the man that's in that room. Uh huh. So he goes back to his room and he starts cleaning the blood off of this man's left arm. Mm-hmm. And at first he just saw a big like letter B. And then as he cleans it a little bit more, he saw a tattoo reading Born to Raise Hell. And he asked the man, what is your name? And the man said, Richard Speck. Wow, he gave us... For his full name and his well, real name. Well, he was dying, so... Okay, makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, Dr. Smith calls the police, and he's like, Hey, I think I've got the man that you're looking for that's responsible for the murders of the nurses mm-hmm. here in my hospital. And the person that he spoke to was like, I don't believe you. And of he's course like, not. He's like, you don't have to believe me, but you have to come check this out. Like, uh-huh. you have to, this is your job. You have to come yes. here and look at this. Um. So, Richard Speck was stabilized, mm-hmm. and then he was placed under, under arrest the same day as he is laying in his hospital bed. Good. 
Absolutely what he deserves. Yeah, he was arrested April 17th, 1966, in his hospital bed just 72 hours after he committed the murder. Mm-hmm. So, the prosecution immediately began building a case against Beck. They, I mean, they had a survivor. Yes. Which greatly helped. Mm-hmm. And they had evidence from the crime scene. Mm-hmm. So, just two days after he was arrested, Corazon, I'm t- this woman... I don't know if I could be as strong as her. Uh-huh. Because she was absolutely fearless. Wow. I mean, I'm sure she was terrified, <laughs> but she was so brave. Two days after he was arrested, Corazon visited the jail hospital dressed in her nurse's uniform, you know, going on this, like, she was posing as just a regular nurse. Uh-huh. And she was there to identify Speck. Okay. So, it was obviously, this was all arranged with, like, the detectives and yes. the jail hospital staff. Uh-huh. So, she walks in the room with another nurse as Speck was speaking with a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And she positively identified him, identified him as the man that was in the townhouse. Wow, yeah. That, she really is such a badass and really strong oh, to be yeah, able yeah. to do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Speck had been in the townhouse for hours, so she had plenty of time mm-hmm. to memorize his face. And Speck was none the wiser that Corazon was not an actual nurse. Good. So, Speck never admitted to the murders. Like, throughout the investigation, he'd always stated he'd been too drunk and messed up on acid to remember anything that happened that night. He Mm -hmm. said he blacked out. He didn't know what happened. I don't believe him, but sure. Well, there's lots of evidence to prove that he knew exactly what he was doing. Of course. So, the trial against Richard Speck began in April 1967. hmm William Martin was the lead prosecutor. He was young, but he was, like, really smart and determined to put Speck behind bars. And that's one thing I want to say about this is, like, all of the detectives, the prosecutors, everybody that worked so hard to put Richard Speck behind bars, in later interviews, I don't know if I've ever seen investigators so, I mean... Again, they all, you know, if they're a good detective or a good prosecutor, they get upset about it, you know? Yeah. Um, But they all were just so, even years later, were so passionate and so, showed so much compassion and Mm -hmm. empathy for the victims. There were so many times watching interviews with them that I got so emotional. So when it came to opening statements, William Martin, he described the events of the evening based on Corazon's account. And then he also had to take into account, like, the family members of these murdered women are sitting right behind me. Oh, and wow. so he tried to relay the information as delicately as he could. Yeah. So the family members of each of the women were allowed to take the stand to describe their daughter or their sister. Mm-hmm. And it was absolutely heartbreaking. Oh, I bet. Heartbreaking. When Pamela Wilkening's mom took the stand, she told the, you know, the jury, like, the last time she spoke to Pamela was on the on the phone when Pamela had called to say, I can't come home this weekend because I'm going to stay at the townhouse and study for finals. Mm-hmm. And then she told, she was asked, when is the last time that you saw your daughter? And she said July 14th when she had to identify her body at the morgue. Oh. So... On day three, Corazon took the stand. Mm-hmm. Now, she had been in hiding since the identification of Richard Speck. 
and she'd been under constant supervision of detectives that were working the case. Uh-huh. Um, they'd helped prepare her for trial, and they tried to make her feel as comfortable as possible. I mean, she'd only been in the country three months when this happened. Mm-hmm. So, she didn't know anything about the legal system, the ju- how, like, the justice system works. She did not know what was happening. Yeah. And in one of her, like, the day after, you know, the, the murders, she was speaking with cops, and she, like, she asked them, like, is he going to come after me? And they're like, no, like, you, we're not going to let him near you. Mm-hmm. Um, so she didn't know any of that. Yeah. So they helped prepare for trial. And they'd actually done a really good job of guarding Corazon. Like, so much, in fact, that people didn't know if she was still in the country. They thought maybe she had gone back to the Philippines mm-hmm. and didn't want to come, you know, for trial. Because who who would blame her? Like, yeah. she, it was a traumatic event. She had seen her friends get brutally murdered. Mm-hmm. And then she found their bodies. It was horrific. Yeah. Um, Bill William Martin had actually gone to great lengths to protect Cora, and her mother and her cousin had actually flown over from the Philippines to stay with her. Mm-hmm. So he had actually, after she had identified Richard Speck at the jail hospital, she and her family were hidden in this really nice resort mm-hmm. in um, on Lake Michigan uh-huh. near the Wisconsin border. Wow. So nobody knew where she was. And this was months mm-hmm. that she was there. Uh-huh. And she was under the constant care of Detective Lalinda, Detective Jim Gorgalis, and Detective James Concannon. Martin had also arranged for an interpreter to stay with them for the duration of the time until the trial. Mm-hmm. The detectives were really protective of Corazon. And because they were basically living together for like nine months, they developed a really close relationship and friendship. And so they'd spend their evenings, you know, obviously they wanted to like keep her calm and make yeah. her feel as comfortable as possible. They would spend their evenings playing cards and ping pong. Aww. So the first time Corazon spoke publicly about the events of the murder mm-hmm. um, was at the trial. Now, in the nine months since the murder had happened, there had been plenty of offers coming in, like, through um, a lawyer for her. Mm-hmm. Like, for movies and book deals and offers for, like, high-paying interviews. And Corazon absolutely refused. I don't blame her. She said, like, the lives of my friends meant more to me, and I'm not going to profit off of their deaths. Yeah. So, as Corazon gave her testimony in court, she really was. Like, she was so brave and confident, but she was also so, like just genuine and like you could tell how deeply hurt she was Mm -hmm. and there was a level of survivor's guilt that she felt yeah because eight of her friends died and she was still here Mm -hmm. she maintained eye contact with the jury members and she didn't shy away when she was asked questions she used a replica of the townhouse and figurines of her classmates um that the prosecution had brought in to show exactly what happened and where everybody was mm-hmm. on the night of the 13th. When William Martin asked if she had seen, if she seen the man in the courtroom that had murdered her friends that evening, Corazon got down off the stand, walked over in front of Richard Speck, pointed at him and said, this is the man. Everybody in the courtroom was like, they did not know what to think. Like, yeah. Something like that had never happened before. Uh-huh. And, again, I I can't even imagine the fear that she must have felt, but she was so brave in just saying, like, 
showing him that I'm not afraid of you mm-hmm. and you're not going to take any more of my life. Yes, and that's so awesome that she did that. Yeah. Richard Speck remained emotionless. Like of course. pretty much the entire way he'd been the entire like entire mm-hmm. time since he'd been since his arrest. So in addition to Corazon's testimony, um, the prosecution also entered into evidence various pieces of physical evidence that they had obtained from the crime scene. Uh-huh. Including the three fingerprints that were found on the door of one of the upstairs bedrooms that matched Richard Speck. And the white t-shirts that had been found with the sweat and the blood stains. Mm-hmm. Um, so they actually found two t-shirts. Both were the sa- uh, same size that Richard Speck wore. Mm-hmm. And one of... Because they were two different white t-shirts. They were two different brands. Uh-huh. One of the brands was his favorite brand of white t-shirt. And so after his arrest, when they searched his hotel room, they found an identical white t-shirt in his suitcase... To one of the white t-shirts that were found at the ho- I mean at the townhouse. Mm-hmm. And he was wearing one of those white t-shirts when he was taken to the emergency room after his suicide attempt. Um, the switchblade knife that was believed to have been the murder weapon was found just past a bridge in the 100th Street River. Both of the blades on that switchblade um, showed remnants of what was believed to have been blood. And there were small pieces of fabric embedded into the handles with oh. blood stains. So that's how hard he was stabbing. Oh my goodness. It, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, it's, ooh. it's gruesome. It is. It's so upsetting. It, I can't, like, I can't, there's no other, I can't think of another word. It's so upsetting. Yeah, and none of those young women did anything to him. No. To deserve, well, no, no one deserves it, but. Um, again, I've said this for like the 15th time, because it's 1966 and DNA was not a thing, they could only go off of like blood type. Yeah. Um, and the blood found on the fabric, it was determined to be human blood. Mm-hmm. And as well as one of the sta- as one of the blades, the stains on that could be determined to be human. The stains on the other blade mm-hmm. were too deteriorated to determine if they were human or animal. Uh-huh. So, in addition to that um, physical evidence, he also brought in um, Detective Walinda. And Detective Walinda took the stand. And he testified as to what he'd found when he entered the townhouse. And then nine photos of the townhouse and the victims, which had been carefully selected because these crime scenes, it was brutal. Yeah. And they wanted to... I think when you're a prosecutor and you're selecting those photos, you want to do it in a way that gives as much dignity to the victim as possible. You don't like that's that's you don't want to just lay that out there. Mm-hmm. Like so they were very careful in how they selected those photos to show to the jury. Mm-hmm. They obviously wanted them to see like how brutal this attack was, but they did not want to um like, show any disrespect to the victims and their memories. Yeah, and that's that's so good of them to be thinking of the victims and their families. Yeah. Um, the prosecution knew they had a really strong case, and so did the defense. Um, really? Pulp, well, they knew that the prosecution had a good case. Oh, okay, 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 yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought you were saying, like, the defense had a strong case. Oh, no, they no. had shit. <laughs> um, the, a public defender, last name Getty, 
he was assigned to take Richard. Mm-hmm. So he goes into the trial trying to show it was a case of mistaken identity. And he relied heavily on using big words and lengthy sentences to try and confuse witnesses for the prosecution. However, he was very well aware that the jury had formed a connection with Corazon after her testimony. Uh So he was very deliberate and delicate when he questioned her. (laughs) Now, he did ask, like, he'd still use those big words and lengthy sentences. And there were a couple times where Corazon was like, I don't know. I -hmm. don't know. But he was he did not go after her like a bulldog like he did some of the other witnesses. Uh-huh. Getty really seemed to lose confidence in his theory that this was a case of mistaken identity when a side-by-side photo of Richard Speck and the com- the composite drawing of the murder suspect was shown. Mm-hmm. Um I think he was intending to cast doubt on the validity of the composite drawing. Because it didn't show all of the acne scarring. Yeah. Um, but he showed up real quick because even without the acne scarring, when you put them side by side, they look very much alike. <laughs> so he was like, okay, well, I don't really have a case. Yeah. So he kind of showed up after that. I mean, I, I could not be a public defender. I just I just couldn't. In a case like this, I'd be like, your honor, he's guilty. <laughs> I mean, I, I couldn't be a, a lawyer, a defense lawyer. No. I mean, I know there are guilt, there are innocent people that are... Found guilty. Yes. And I think I would, you know, obviously they deserve justice. Mm-hmm. Because convicting someone just because you want to convict somebody, that's committing another crime. And you're not giving justice to the victim. No. But in a situation where this man clearly is guilty, mm-hmm. I couldn't do it. I could not do it. Could not either. So, the trial only lasted two weeks. Richard Speck never took the stand. He didn't really say anything and he never admitted to the murder. Of course not. The jury was out for about 49 minutes before they came back with a guilty verdict Mm -hmm. and sentenced Richard Speck to death by electric chair. Um, However, his sentence was commuted to eight consecutive life sentences when the death penalty was ruled unconstitutional by the state of Illinois in 1972. So after that, he began having parole hearings every year or every other year which meant that the family members of the victims had to relive the murders all over again and had to go and fight to keep him behind bars, which he wasn't going to get out, but the fact that they actually had to go do that was Yeah, it's horrific. ridiculous. Um, and they did. The parents and the siblings of the murdered women showed up at every parole hearing, and then as time went on and their parents began to pass away, it was left up to their siblings to keep showing up, mm-hmm. and they did. I mean, wow. even though it was absolutely heartbreaking, yeah, they did. Um, so even after his conviction, Speck didn't speak publicly about the the murders, and he really didn't even show up to his parole hearings. Like he just he didn't give a shit. He did not give a mm-hmm. shit. He maintained that he did not remember the events of that evening. Now I did read um, an article that said that he had confessed to a Chicago Tribune or a Chicago Sun-Times reporter in the uh-huh. late 70s, but I couldn't find a copy of that article. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I don't know if he actually did. Mm-hmm. And then I also want to mention that it was, that he did initially confess to the murders to Dr. Smith, but it couldn't be entered into evidence or put on record because he was heavily sedated when he confessed. It wasn't until years later that Speck admitted to killing all of the nurses, and that's when he gave a possible motive. 
So, in a video interview that was made in prison in 1988, Speck admitted to the murder. He was asked what he's in for, and he replies, eight counts of murder. Mm-hmm. And then he was asked if he did it, and he said, sure, I did. Um, he claimed that he only initially went there to rob the women. However, he said all hell broke loose. He said one of the women had made him angry. This gets me every time. It got me. Mm-hmm. Investigators believe that that was Pamela Wilkening. She was the first woman murdered. It was theorized that when he took Pamela from the room, he had every intention of raping her. However, she resisted. He said, he didn't name her, but he said that the woman spit in his face and told him she was going to pick him out of a lineup. And then after that, two more women came in, which was Marianne and Suzanne, and they started screaming. So he killed them. And he said he killed the others because he couldn't leave any witnesses. When he was asked how he felt afterward, he said he didn't feel anything. He asked the, he states, like, if you're asking me if I felt sorry, no. Wow. What an evil, evil I mean, it, man. like, oh, it, it gave me chills. Gave me chills. Mm-hmm. And hearing that Pamela, who was the one who was, like, super quiet and, like, how dare he break into their house and yeah. then murder them like that? Like, it mm-hmm. just, it was so, so disturbing, so upsetting. I, what the hell did he expect for them to be like? He just... was, he's an evil person, an yeah. evil person. Mm-hmm. So that was really the only confession that ever, that anybody ever got. The mm-hmm. only possible motive that. Somebody made him mad, and he didn't want to leave any witnesses. Wow. Richard Speck died in prison one day before his 50th birthday in 1991. Um, The contents of that interview were not made public until 1993. Mm Mm-hmm. So, Corazon, she went on. She worked as a nurse at Georgetown University in D.C. until she retired. She got married. She had kids. Um, She married a lawyer. Like, she lived a good, full life. According to an article written by Esquire magazine in 2021, she's still alive and she's enjoying retirement and being a grandmother. Mm -hmm. Like, of course, she's, this woman's going to like, she's such a badass. She is. Um, and so I do want to mention, I briefly mentioned this to you, like when I watched it, but, Uh um, there is an interview that Corazon did with Oprah Winfrey back in 1993. Mm -hmm. Now, Corazon has never, ever it's been almost 60 years since the murders. Mm-hmm. She has never accepted money. Like, the interview with Oprah was the first time she had spoken publicly about this uh-huh. since the trial. She didn't get paid for that. She's never accepted any money for any kind of book. She's never agreed to a book deal. Never been paid for an interview. She refuses to profit off of their deaths. Mm-hmm. So, found the Oprah interview on YouTube. Uh-huh. And Corazon talks about the murder. She talks about the women, about her friends. And um, then at one point, this is what got me and made me cry. Uh (laughs) So, you know, when she was in hiding between the arrest and the trial, Mm -hmm. she had gotten really close to 
Detective Walenda, Detective um, Gorgalis, and yeah. Detective Concanon. Mm-hmm. And even Wilosinski, one of the the person that first found out Richard's name, um, had gotten really close to all of them. Yeah. And they hadn't seen each other since the trial. Oh. So, Oprah was like, "They're here," you know, in <laughs> Oprah's voice. Yeah. And Detective Walenda was not a tiny person. He's mm-hmm. this big. Got definitely, you can tell he's from Chicago. Yeah. He speaks with a very, like, he's very rough accent. And he and um, Gorgalis and Concanon and Wilosinski, they come down. And when um, Detective Walenda and Concanon and Gorgalis saw Corazon and she saw them, everybody started crying. <laughs> oh, no. It was, oh, it was oh. so... It was so touching, mm-hmm. and I think it's one of those things where, you know, the worst knot of her life, the worst knot of all of the women's lives and their family, and then it's such a tragedy, and there's something, and I, I don't know, and it really gets me emotional every time, but, like, there's something so beautiful about you see the worst in people, mm-hmm. and then you have these detectives who were not hardened by what they saw. They have so much love for her, and she has so much love for them because for her, they protected her. They did. And for them, they they wanted to keep her safe. It just, it was so beautiful. It made me cry. hmm Watching them cry, and then um, they go and they hug each other, and she said, I never forgot you. Oh. And they say, we never forgot you. Detective Walenda's holding her hand basically the entire interview. Uh-huh. Um, I keep saying this little girl, you know, because she was, <laughs> she was 23, 24 at the time. Mm-hmm. And Detective Walenda, when he had this case, he was a father of like eight kids. He had daughters. Wow, eight? Yeah. So, <laughs> as a dad, seeing these young women and, you know, Corazon had been in the country three months. Like, mm-hmm. she, you know, this was supposed to be, like, an experience for her, a positive experience. Yeah. So, they interview them, and then the prosecutor, William Martin, is there. Mm-hmm. And also there is um, Patricia Matusik's sister, Betty Jo. And so, they're all together. Every, you can tell everybody's been, like, absolutely crying. Their yeah. eyes are all bloodshot. And Oprah, she kind of pissed me off a little bit. <laughs> because she kept saying, why didn't you say anything? Why didn't anybody scream? Now, again, this uh, it's early 90s. Mm-hmm. I don't know if people didn't think that victim blaming was okay. Don't totally was never okay. No. But I don't think people recognized it the way we do now. Exactly. We're more educated. So I was getting very heated at Oprah keeping, like, keeping on asking Corazon, why didn't you scream? Mm-hmm. And William Martin... Like, kind of shut it down. Good. He was like, you know, this was 1966. Something like this had not happened in the country. I mean, obviously, there had been murders and, Mm -hmm. you know, there were riots going on. He's like, but up until this, people felt safe in their homes. Yeah. He's like, when this man broke in and told them that he just wanted to rob them, they didn't have any other reason to believe that he was going to do anything no, else. They were trying to cooperate so that he wouldn't kill them. And every time one of them moved, he would point the gun at them. Mm-hmm. Like, they were all terrified. Yeah. And again, going back to mentioning the setup of the townhomes, 
they only shared a wall with one other townhome, and those neighbors were out of town. So, so even if they had screamed, they don't know if anybody would have gotten there. Yeah. I mean, Marianne and Suzanne, they screamed when they saw what he was attempting to do to Pam, mm-hmm. and nobody heard them. No. No one came running. No one heard them. So, you know, he was just like, that's not something that happened. He's like, now in today's age, we know, like, if somebody says, I'm not going to hurt you, they're going to hurt you. Mm-hmm. But back at that time in 1966, that you believe people. This yeah. is like leave it to Beaver area, you know? Mm-hmm. Like people did not believe that you weren't safe in your own home. And this was the first time when the country was like, We're not safe in our own home. Yeah. And it was it was oh, it was very like that. We'll link that because that Oprah interview mm-hmm. was just it was so so eye-opening, and she asked Betty Jo, Patricia's sister, how do you move on? Mm-hmm. And she's just like, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, there's, like, you can't explain that. No, and I was thinking about it, too. I mean, I've I've lost people mm-hmm. that I cared about. Uh-huh. But I've never lost anybody in this way. And I just, everything is different in your life. Mm-hmm. Like, when you wake up. The sunset, I mean, the sunrise looks different. And mm-hmm. your favorite food tastes different because yeah. this person is not there anymore. Your mm-hmm. favorite song doesn't sound as good because you're missing a part of you. And it, like, seeing Betty Jo just, and she looks so much like Patricia. Like, yeah. You know, they were sisters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just hearing her talk about it. And um, then one of the student nurses who was in the program with them, she was in the audience. And she got up, you know, how they did back in the 90s. They raised their hand uh-huh. and the talk show host went over and put the microphone yes. in front of them. And she was like, you know, a lot of nurses in our class, a lot of people who were close to the case, we kind of just stopped talking about it. Because people weren't asking us how this made us feel. Mm-hmm. People were asking us, why did this happen? And yeah. we didn't have that no, answer. They don't know. And... It was just, it was really difficult to talk about because at some point people stopped talking about it and they just wanted to know why it happened. Mm-hmm. And um, it was it was really, really sad. Really sad. Um, so, Valentina, Merlita, and Corazon, they were already nurses. Yeah. When they arrived here. So, they were not part of the nursing program. Mm-hmm. But in August 1966, when there was the graduation... Mm-hmm. Um, Gloria Davy, Val, uh, sorry, this, this case really got me. <laughs> Gloria Davy, Patricia Matusik, mm-hmm. Nina Jo Schmel, Mary Ann Ferris, uh, Mary Ann Jordan, Suzanne Ferris, and Pamela Wilkening, they were all posthumously awarded their, mm-hmm. um, diplomas, and they were given to either, like, their parents or their siblings or their fiancés. So, and then also... There's an episode of A Crime to Remember, mm-hmm. which also made me cry. <laughs> um, at the very end, the way that they describe the women and talk about, you know, they were not only robbed of their lives, they're robbed of their memory. Yeah. Because just, you know, and I've been saying the last half of this. The nurses or the women, mm-hmm. not even naming them individually, and that feels wrong to be doing that mm-hmm. because they weren't a group. No, they were individuals. They were individuals with individual lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so, oh, this one was a really tough one. 
Yeah, it is. Um, so just as we end it, mm-hmm. I would just like to say all of their names again individually because they were all individuals. Yes, absolutely. So on the night of July 13th, 1966, Pamela Lee Wilkening, Suzanne Bridget Ferris, Mary Ann Jordan, Nina Jo Schmel, Valentina Passion, Merlita Ornato Gargulo, Patricia Ann Matusik, and Gloria Jean Davy were murdered. And Corazon Amaral was a survivor. Mm-hmm. She was. Uh. Anyway, <laughs> I'm going to end it. Like, I can't. This yes, that really one is, gets me. It does. It does. And we thank you all for listening. Thank you. Yes. Um, if you want to get in contact with us, you can reach us on Instagram at Monsters and Murder Pod, or you can send us an email at Monsters and Murder Pod at gmail.com. Yes. We'd love to hear from you. Yes. And until next time, stay safe, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.